Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. You know what to do. Go on over to the website. It's TravelingCulturati.com. And make sure you sign up for that travel club because, yes, we go places. And we want to make sure that you're the first to know when we're on the go. And you won't be able to do that if you don't sign up for the travel club. Again, that's TravelingCulturati.com. Well, today we have a fabulous show for you. But before we get to that, we always have some travel news. And I have some really big news coming down the pike. That is a wonderful first ever travel event and expo that's coming up in October of this year that you won't want to miss. And I have the honor and pleasure to have the founder on with me today, Stan Kelly, who is the founder of Port of Go an international destination and travel expo. Well, hello, Stan, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello, Javon. Thank you for having me. It is certainly my pleasure, and I'm super excited about what you're doing, Port of Go, International Destination and Travel Expo, because I think travel is such a big, broad industry, and we don't really recognize how big that is because there's so many narrow focuses when it comes to it. So having an event that brings all of that to light and that's really going to offer so much information. You know, we're in the age of information, so it's really important and it's all about that. So tell us a little bit about Port of Go. Port of Go was designed to be an all things travel expo that people can go to and attend, a consumer show that is, from cruising to airlines to Samsonite luggage to makeup to fashion Before you pack your suitcase, it could be insurance, it could be legal information you need, financial planning strategies to budget for your travel showcase, our travel showing. And that's what Port of Go was designed to be. And it's matching consumers with travel managers, businesses who want to book people for hotels and resorts or theme parks, all those things that are included in that. I'm so glad to hear that because Again, a lot of times people just have the idea that they want to go on vacation. They want to (laughs) travel. And so it's really all they think about, but they don't think about all the other things that are part of travel. And then also for travel professionals as well, to make sure you're picking the right one. Can you give us a broader picture of who Port of Go is for? Absolutely. It's for, let's say the wedding couple who's planning to get married. Let's say the seniors who are planning an anniversary. Let's say for the girls who want a girlfriend getaway. Let's say for corporations who are looking for a place to do their retreat. Let's say for the families who just want to pick up a suitcase and go. Or let's just say for that individual who just wants to fly somewhere to go to lunch or spend 24 hours in another city, that kind of thing. It's really for all consumers, all walks of life, And the education component that you mentioned is something that is designed to kind of help people strategize, especially in this financial time we're in, strategize that you can actually travel. You could actually go wherever you want to go. I have a hashtag that's called Where to Anywhere that we use, and it's designed to help everybody get involved in travel. I've been in the travel industry for more than 30 years, and sometimes I question, oh boy, what did you get yourself into? (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about you getting to this point of wanting to develop something like Port of Go. I started as a creative marketing advertising agency, and I was doing annual reports for Disney and the city of Orlando and putting on different events. And someone approached me and said, you know, I've never seen a travel event, an all things travel event with an emphasis on cruising. And of course, we know the cruise industry took a big hit after COVID. And I kind of metamorphosized it into something different with all things travel and all different genres of travel or methods of travel. And I took that conversation where I was out of town on a business trip and I went back and started a drawing board creating this concept for a travel show for consumers, keeping consumers in mind. And it developed and evolved into what it is now. And we have different components and facets of it so that the travel managers, as well as guests who are visiting the Port of Go, have an opportunity to really expand and spread their wings. We have a magazine called 
travelticketmagazine.com that they can go to and learn about it. We have a newsletter and we're trying to make sure we serve everyone in every possible platform about travel and all roads leading to Port of Go. It's sort of like if you say Port of Miami, Port of New Orleans, Port of Los Angeles, Port of Boston, Port of Go and where to anywhere. That's kind of the concept going anywhere you want to go. I see. And one thing I want to applaud you on is saying travel managers. I don't know why, but I have this thing about being called a travel agent only because I think it oversimplifies and I think it's a very dated term and it makes people think in a very narrow focus. So when you say travel manager, it changes the dynamic of that. And so how will Port of Go benefit the travel manager or professional? Well, one of the tremendous opportunities that awaits them is that here's a chance to expand your brand. Here's a chance to pull in new customers. Some people have probably already traveled. A lot of people have, but a lot of people haven't. And one of the things that I decided was I was going to go into areas where they did not have a travel expo. People travel, but there's a whole bevy of individuals waiting to travel if you come and introduce it to them. So travel managers get an opportunity to say, hey, come stay in our hotel, come fly our airlines, come play golf at our resort, wear this particular fashion going there, this particular thing, you know. So, you know, I think that the biggest benefit is increasing their bottom line profit by more exposure. You can sometimes get stale in the in the circle that you're operating in. It might be good, it may be productive, but think about how much more productive it will be if you were out and getting more exposure and inexpensive ways to promote your travel business. Absolutely. And I would imagine that there's some educational value for the professional as well. Absolutely. You know, one of the things we're going to do is have different speakers come in, travel experts and speakers. And a lot of people claim they know, and they might want to talk about the trip with their grandkids. We're not looking for those. Look at people who actually give some added value that you can take back to your business and implement and utilize, even through the network or the association of being a part of Port of Go, is going to increase that value, your knowledge, your expertise, your experience by doing so. And you know, one thing you have here, legal counselors. Now, how would a traveler benefit from legal counselors being at the expo? Well, a lot of times people are going on trips because they may be planning a six-month stay. And if something happens, this is a part of life. They want to make sure their home goes to who it wants to go to, their income goes where it wants to go to. It's all about a part of planning, almost like any other kind of plan. But because travel is such a disruptive, and I don't mean that negatively, it's such a different course than what you normally do if you're just home. Once you travel, you're subject to the laws of their country and things that are going on, weather, things change, could be another pandemic. So you just want to make sure that you check the boxes to make sure, okay, I've gotten my shots. I've gotten my money straight for if something happens to me, my family or my grandson gets us to go to college, those kind of things. And that's why we talk about those issues. And I'm so glad that that's part of it, because as I mentioned earlier, so many times, and I understand why, because travel is a fun thing. And so, oh, I want to travel. I want to go on vacation. I want to see the world or I want to go here. And a lot of times people never stop to think about the what ifs. And those are the things and the times that you wish you had more education when you are presented with the what ifs. Well, you know, we try to look at what consumers could experience, like you say, on the what if spectrum. And it adds such value to them to be more thorough as they travel and make sure all bases are covered. Then when you're traveling, you're kind of traveling with a lot of peace of mind. You're not wondering, what if I would have done this or if I hadn't done this or should I have done this or should not have done it? So you're just checking the boxes. It could be the same with going for travel insurance, just making sure. And I'm not advocating any particular legal firm or any particular insurance company, but these are things that you have to think about as you travel abroad wherever you go and traveling, just like putting gas in the car to make sure it's going to take you to where you need to go. You need to make sure you check those boxes on the intangibles, those other things that are not right in front of you. Absolutely. And also having here financial institutions, because you know what's happening right now is that we had the pandemic, right? So people had trips planned. 
vacations, corporate travel, meetings, all of these things planned in 2020, and it came to an abrupt halt. And then we spent the next two years trying to figure things out. How do we get back to business? Because travel was an industry that was grossly affected by it. But then 2022, 2023, the year we're currently in, and the last part of last year, they came up with revenge travel. And it is a thing. I don't know if I agree with the name revenge, but (laughs) it it is a thing that everyone said, look, two years, I haven't been able to go anywhere. And some folks had saved up money from trips that they didn't get to go on before. And so everyone's traveling at the same time. But now, as we are more than halfway through 2023, experts are saying things are slowing down and people are becoming more financially aware. So how are the financial institutions that are a part of Portigo helping the traveler? The influence of money is so important. Shrinkflation, these are realities that we deal with. Even though we feel like travel is essential to go into the grocery store, it is, but you really have to be more conscious about how you budget for it. Shrinkflation is coming in, your dollar is going not as far as it used to go. Energy costs are going up. In some cases, just travel expenditures are going up. And the cost of living in terms of housing or apartments are going up. So sometimes you need some outside help to budget and really start your plan. If you're going to travel, say, in the spring, then you should start saving now. You know, if it's spring of next year, you should start saving now. If it's $50 every two weeks to put a hundred bucks a month to put towards your travel expenses, you do it. I'm just using that number, probably more than that, but people sometimes just do it on a whim and then they come back with credit cards maxed out and full and they can't pay them. And then people are constantly calling them because their debts are, they're in the rears. The financial aspect of it is having people to talk to you and get you on some sort of plan. Sometimes this leads to better banking relationships. What people need is not a bank just to hold their money. They need banking partners, partners who say, hey, that's probably not the best thing to do, but why don't you do this and programs that can help them. So to introduce that, that's going to help the financial institutions, but it's going to more importantly help the consumer. I'm super excited about Port of Go coming up. Again, that's in Memphis, Tennessee, October 7th and 8th. And the website is portofgo.com. Any last words you want to tell us? I want people to come out and just enjoy themselves and support this. And we really want to stress people who have not traveled before, get an opportunity to come and just check it out. It's family friendly. It's fun for everybody. And you're going to love this experience. And hopefully you'll get it on an annual basis right there in Memphis. And not only are you going to love the experience, you get so much education, financial institutions and planners. We said entertainment, luggage, insurance companies, legal counsel. That's very important. You may not think about it, but it's certainly a topic and a conversation that you want to have. Cruise industry, hotels, resorts, rental car companies, fashion, transportation is going to have it all. And you definitely want to make your plans now so that you can experience Memphis and the Port of Go, October 7th and 8th. And again, that's portofgo.com. Stan Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. What an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much, Javon. Thank you. So again, the website is portofgo.com. And you can also follow Port of Go on social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just look for Port of Go. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit travelingculturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you visit the website, travelingculturati.com, connect with me on social media, and don't forget to join that travel club because we go some fantastic places, one of which is New York City. Yes, we went to New York City recently and got a chance to visit some wonderful places. And I like to share our travel experiences with you. One of the places that we're visiting is the African Burial Ground National Monument. And on with me to chat about it is Emily Welch, the lead ranger at the African Burial Ground National Monument. Hello, Emily, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. 
Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Now, people may be wondering, why am I talking to a ranger when I'm talking about the African Burial Ground National Monument? So how is that connection? So in 2006, President George W. Bush made this a national monument. So he made it a unit of the National Park Service. The park rangers are the people that work for the National Park Service. It's amazing how many historical sites are part of our national parks. I've been discovering that since I've been doing my show, which now has been more than a decade, but so many historic monuments are part of the National Park Service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's national monuments, national historical parks like Women's Rights National Historical Park in upstate New York, which also tells another really important story. So our historical parks are no different than our other national parks and monuments. And it must mean that you have an exciting job as a ranger. And I think we don't often think about the vast roles that park rangers play. We think they're always in the forest, (laughs) I think, (laughs) if you will, but that's not always the case. So how long have you been a ranger? I've been a park ranger for seven years. How many different places have you been stationed? Gosh, uh, about five or six now. I've been to places like Klondike Goldwash National Historical Park in Skagway, Alaska. I worked at Pu'uanua Ohonanao National Historical Park in the Big Island of Hawaii, Women's Rights that I mentioned, Whitman Mission, and the Manhattan Project in Washington State. So yeah, it's been an exciting career for sure. Have any of those been in the forest? Klondike Gold Rush, there was some forest and there's some bears, what you think of more traditional. We have kind of two elements there of the park where there's the small town of Skagway, which is really out of the 1800s. And then there's the sister town that you can go visit, which is in the forest. I see. And do you get a chance to choose or are you assigned? Uh, We choose, ma'am. We apply for the jobs just like anybody would. It's not like the military where you're assigned. You apply for the specific job at the specific site. So no surprises. So what led you to the African Burial Ground National Monument? This was my background in, I have a bachelor's and a master's in history, and I always loved more of the untold stories of women's history and Black history. I also went to school in Charleston, South Carolina, which was the number one city for slavery. So it just made sense to study that as well, because there's so many resources in Charleston, yeah, uh, including the Avery Research Center, which is a really special place. Oh, fantastic. You mentioned Charleston. I'm going to go there in January for the opening of the International African-American Museum there. So I'm oh, excited yes. about that. I'm very excited yes. about that. So let's talk about the African Burial Ground National Monument. What is it exactly? It is a place where 15,000 free and enslaved Africans and their descendants are buried over 6.6 acres, five city blocks. So New York City, or what was called New Amsterdam under the Dutch, the early colonial residents, they called this place New Amsterdam, and they forcibly brought over African people to build the city, clear the land. And those folks were not allowed to be buried in the Caucasian cemetery, so they had their own separate burial ground. So it is a burial ground. It wasn't like a mass grave. No, we don't think there's a mass grave. There's a possibility that there are Revolutionary War soldiers buried there that might be unmarked or mass graves. But no, people are individually buried within coffins and most likely or often burial shrouds. So when and where and how was the site discovered or unearthed? So in 1989, the General Services Administration, I'm going to call them the GSA going forward to keep it short. The GSA is part of the federal government and they are the landlords of the federal buildings and they build the federal buildings and they purchased this property at 290 Broadway to build this 34 story building that I'm standing in today with the intention of building a four story pavilion with a childcare center where the memorial now stands. But 1966 federal law says before you build, you must make sure there's no archeological remains. And they did have the Mearshock plan from 1755 that said that there was a Negro burial ground here. Now we don't think it was ever called that by those who reused it. We think it was always called the African burial ground. And they were anticipating about 50 human remains because the idea was, well, 
The burial ground has been out of use since 1795. There's been buildings on this property since then. What are the chances of more than 50 human remains being intact? But what needed to be kept in mind is the word Manhattan. The word Manhattan comes from the Lenape, the indigenous person's word for island of rolling hills, Manhattan. And those hills were leveled off in order to build buildings. And they took some of that dirt, 25 to 30 feet, and put it over the African burial ground as well as a landfill. So as disrespectful as that was at the time, it actually preserved the African burial ground. And that is why the archaeologists would instead find 15,000 human remains. Now, I wish I could say the government was overjoyed by this discovery that they were looking to preserve the area. That's not what's happening. They were looking to build the building. And so they were taking people and removing them from their burial sites and putting them in storage Mm -hmm. units over at Lehman College. And this gets leaked to the descendant community. And the descendant community are those folks that identify with the ancestors as their ancestors. And they're incredibly upset. So they would protest, they would have vigils, they would get politicians involved like Mayor David Dinkins, Governor Patterson, Gus Savage. And in 1991, when this rediscovery would happen, they're pressuring the GSA to halt construction. This happens over 1991, 1992. And the whole time the General Services Administration is resisting, they are continuing to remove human remains until Congress in 1992, from pressure from the descendant community, tells the GSA, well, we're not giving you any more money until you stop what you're doing and come up with a compromise with the descendant community. Now, the first compromise they proposed was, we'll take the 419 people that we've removed and we'll reinturn them, rebury them across the street from the African burial ground at Foley Square, which is the tail end of the African burial ground, not the alleyway where they were originally found. And we'll build our building just as intended, but we'll put a plaque in that building for the ancestors. And that was considered not a very good compromise. So the second compromise the government provided was the one that we have today, which is a museum, a memorial, artwork in the lobby of the Ted Weiss Federal Building. So when you walk into this building, you're always reminded of where you stand and there's exhibits out there as well. And they also created an office of public education and interpretation. But unfortunately that was housed in the World Trade Center, number six and destroyed in the 9-11 attacks. So those were the folks that were educating thousands of people about the African burial ground prior to President George W. Bush making this a national monument in 2006. Wow. So the building was constructed, but they then, just as you mentioned, with the monument, the memorial and educational pieces. Wow. Thank you for that in-depth explanation. So I know you said the number of people that were found or coffins, I guess, then were found. But can you speak to anything else that was found? What did they actually see? There were no tombstones or anything marking names, like what we would usually think of as a cemetery. Some of the burials are stacked on top of each other. Some are with family members, like mother and child. There were beads, buttons, other clothing pieces found in the burials. Top of a coffin, Burial 101, is a man's coffin, and he has a what we believe is a Sankofa symbol tacked to the top of the coffin. A Sankofa is a West African Adinkra symbol that means look to the past to build towards the future. Mm-hmm. And that's a message we really like to convey here at the African Burial Ground National Monument. Wow. So let me go back to the other one. Were any bodies moved or they were all left in place? So part of the compromise is that the 419 people that were removed when the building was being built is that they be reinterned, reburied at the actual memorial. So what they did is they had 450 coffins carved in Ghana, all with scenes of homecoming on the outside with kente cloth inside. They came in three different sizes. And what they did is they gave each ancestor a coffin and then they put them in crypts and lowered them below the seven burial mounds that you can see today. So the 419 are reinterned there, but we also believe the 15,000 people are still intact, still buried beneath the 6.6 acres that make up the African burial ground itself. Wow, 6.6 acres. And so without any headstones or anything like that was found, dare I say, then there's no registry of who they might have been. No, ma'am. And I know you said 6.6 acres. I'm trying to envision 
Manhattan and how vast this is and yeah, what areas it covers. Five city blocks. Right. Wow. That is just yeah. amazing. Now, what is the time period of its existence again? Approximately 1650. We're not 100% sure of the start date, but we believe it's around 1650 to 1795. And I probably don't even ask this question, but what is the significance of this not only discovery, but the monument now itself, especially to New York and the United States? Okay, I'm happy to answer this and another in-depth answer, if that's okay. It's a three-part answer. The first I would say is that it's nationally significant because Black history is American history. This is American history for everyone to learn who did the majority of clearing land and building the early city of New York City. It's African people and their descendants, both free and enslaved. So we want to recognize also the contributions to this great city. Secondly, the African Burial Ground National Monument is the largest and oldest excavated African burial ground in North America. So its size, scope, age is nationally significant. And may I ask you, when you think of slavery in the United States, what part of the country do you think of first? The South. I would say that's what most people think. Do you think of plantations or city urban centers? Certainly the first thing that comes to mind when you think about a visual are plantations. Yes, and I think that's what most Americans have taken away from their history classes and from the media. But did you know that New York City was only second to Charleston, South Carolina, an enslaved population? 40% of New Yorkers were enslavers in the early 1700s. Did not know that. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of Virginia and, of mm -hmm. course, South Carolina, I knew. But no, not New York. Wow. The other thing is that many historians prior to the rediscovery in 1991 and the study of the ancestors from 1993 to 2003 at the Cobb Laboratory in Washington, D.C., which is at Howard University, a lot of historians said, well, because we work and live so closely together in Manhattan and New York City, people must have paid more humanity toward the enslaved. Not true. How we know is that was 419 people that were studied at Howard University. What we know is that their teeth and bones show malnourishment, not enough food. We can see arthritis, early aging, disease, early death. The average age of burial is 22 years old, 40% being children under the age of 16. The majority of those children being two and under. So essentially this whitewashing of Northern history, the idea that because abolition happened in the North, because the Civil War was fought on the right side in the North, that they must have been the good guys in history. But that is not fair to the thousands of enslaved individuals or the hundreds of years of slavery that existed in New York City. So the course correction of history was provided by the archaeology and the discovery of the African burial ground, which is nationally significant. Wow. Yeah, I never knew. 40% of New York had enslaved individuals. I did not know that, but only second to Charleston, South Carolina. No, we always think of south of the Mason-Dixon line, right? <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, and I think you're absolutely correct. It's really a disservice and the whitewashing of North American history, especially as it pertains to the unfortunate act of slavery. So what is available to visit today? We have different things available during different times of year. What we have is a really wonderful tactile kinesthetic museum where you can touch most things. So we have a, a 2,000 square feet of museum exhibits and a park film, which is called Our Time at Last. If you don't have a chance to watch it here in our theater, you can catch it on our website. You have artwork in the lobby of the Ted Weiss Federal Building, which was part of, remember, that compromise with the descendant community. We have some beautiful and really thoughtful pieces of artwork. There's the Outdoor Memorial which has the National Monument there, which is really spectacular, created by Rodney Leon. He won a, a competition to design that monument. And we also provide tours. And you can go to recreation.gov in order to make a reservation. And you can have a ranger lead you through the memorial and the museum. Fantastic. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm sure everyone's just going to want to visit the African Burial Ground National Monument. And thank you so much for all of the history you've imparted today as well. Thank you. It was an honor to represent the African Burial Ground National Monument today. And I encourage everybody to come visit us. We're open Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.
a lot of people don't really think about New York and Black history, but there's a wealth of Black history in New York. And joining me today is Stacey Toussaint. She's founder and president of Inside Out Tours, a company that specializes in tours, events, and classes with themes related to hidden history, diversity and inclusion, team building, and an immersive cultural exploration. Well, hello, Stacy, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello. Very honored to be here. Yes. And I'm excited about New York. And I always love going places and finding the unexpected. <laughs> That's one of the things that I love to do because you know what people think of New York is nightlife and theater, the U.S. Open, the city that never sleeps, all of these things. But Black history isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, what's wonderful about New York is that there's been a Black presence in New York since 1626. And African Americans were actually instrumental in forming the infrastructure of New Amsterdam, which is what New York used to be called when it was under the Dutch. You know, it's kind of like things that you know, but are not top of mind. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? When it comes to history, sometimes we get things buried. But I understand that you have a background in business law and academia. What led you to travel and tourism? So prior to starting Inside Out Tours, I was working as a securities lawyer and commercial litigator. But my passion had always been travel. And one of the things I loved about travel was just coming to the understanding of different cultures, their art, their food, and their history. And I just realized that I lived in one of the greatest cities in the world, I really felt like the diversity of the city wasn't being explored properly through the tourism industry. So that's when me, along with a childhood friend, decided to start Inside Out Tools. To your point, it's an issue, I think, in travel and tourism at large, that the full history is not being told wherever you go. So you gave me the why of starting Inside Out Tours, but when did you start exactly? So we started back in 2009, me and my friend Sheila, we ended up writing a business plan, entering into a local business plan competition called Power Up, which is done by the Brooklyn Public Library. And we won that competition, which gave us our seed money to start the company. What differentiates Inside Out Tours from other tour companies? Well, I think just in terms of what we do, it's that we have a social mission and the social mission is to amplify the voice of marginalized populations. As we look at New York history, we consider all the different groups of people that contributed to making this into a great city, and we tell their stories. And I think that's so much needed. Again, telling these full stories, I mean, and not just here in the United States, but when I travel globally, we're only getting one aspect of the story. And it's basically European history. Even when you go outside of Europe, you seem to only get European history. And so it's very much needed to have the diversity in, in the storytelling, in the history, in the people, places, and things. What are some of the main Black history sites in New York? So when you think about the where the African-American community was grouped, you have three regions that were part of early African-American history. And then, of course, people spread out to other places. But if you're talking about the early history, it started in lower Manhattan, which you wouldn't think because there aren't Black communities in lower Manhattan anymore. But there are historical reasons for that, including them being driven out of lower Manhattan, sometimes through the use of eminent domain and other times through just outright violence. Those communities were decimated. Then again, thinking about early New York, of course, you have places like Seneca Village, which used to be where Central Park is now located, again, removed through the use of eminent domain, the government seizing land ostensibly for a public purpose. And then, of course, then you have the Blacks of Brooklyn. Blacks have been in Brooklyn since at least the 1630s and have established communities there. And then the other location would be Harlem. So in terms of the major Black centers, especially with the early history, I would start with those neighborhoods. But of course, then we also have other amazing neighborhoods, including Sandy Ground in Staten Island, as well as in Queens. There are various Black neighborhoods that have been here. And who's taking your tours? One thing that I'm always interested in, who's taking the tours? Who has the extra, I would say, interest in a more diversified history of a city? So as a company, we offer daily scheduled tours, which we call FIT tours. So those an individual or a small group can come. The people who are taking those tours are actually global. So we are one of just a handful of Black-owned receptive tour operators in the entire country, which means 
we offer in New York itineraries for everyone around the world, as well as being able to schedule activities and hotels and all of that. As a result, we do have a global audience for our daily tours. For our group tours, we tend to find that it is African-American groups, as well as progressive groups, as well as school groups that tend to be interested in the history that we're offering. Well, one of the reasons I started my company is because of group tours, because African-Americans love group tours. And I think one of the things when I talk to some of my travelers, it is that camaraderie and that kinship and not feeling like you're in a fishbowl when you're joining another tour group or a scheduled tour, as you said, and you're the only African-American person, you just feel a little like a fish out of water sometimes, um, mm -hmm. or like in a fishbowl. And that's one of the reasons that African-Americans do like to travel in groups. Not that everybody does, because we're just as a diverse a group in travel as any other group would be as well. What are mm -hmm. some of the reactions you get from those who take your tours, especially those coming from other countries? So because we do hidden history, people take our tours for a number of reasons. Some who are not maybe of the particular group that we're talking about, the particular racial ethnic group, they may just be curious about history from the perspective of the community, history from the perspective of groups that you usually don't hear. For people who do belong to the group, so for example, if we have an African-American topic, some of it is really just this thirst to learn the true history. When you are left out of history, it does reduce your sense of belonging. And intuitively, you know that you are part of the story, but when your part of the story is not being told, it's a very alienating experience. So the reactions that we get from people coming from that perspective is just the sense of relief that finally someone's telling these stories and the sense of gratitude actually in the sense that they've wanted this for a while, and now they finally found it. They found a place where they're talking about Black contribution. And so this is something that I think can be really life-changing for people. What about those who are not Black or African-American or African descent? How do they receive the information or react to the history? We do everything from sort of iconic New York told from an inclusive perspective to really specialized topic like our slavery and underground railroad. If it's a really specialized topic, especially dealing with a challenging issue, they're very emotionally moved. And, you know, I've definitely had people approach me and you see their eyes are teary. They're, they just did not understand or realize the extent to which these systems existed in a place like New York. But I always try to emphasize the stories of triumph while not running away from the hard facts. I like to talk about the people who are involved in resistance. I like to talk about the allies that, you know, when they say, oh, he was a man of his time, that's why he enslaved people. I like to point out the people who are actually doing the right thing. And I find this approach actually gives people hope because obviously no one can go back in time and change this, but there's lots of stuff going on today that can be addressed. And so that's how I approach history as a tool for helping us understand our present and also hopefully inspiring others to do their part in their generation. What are some of those hidden or lesser known historical spots? For example, in our slavery tour, we go to the site of the executions related to the 1741 slave revolt. A lot of people don't even know that happened in New York, that there were like two slave revolts and we tell the story of that resistance. You go to places like the African burial ground, although it's a national park, a lot of people don't even know it's there. We go to former sites on the Underground Railroad. So people, again, not realizing that these things exist. And then in terms of just the storytelling itself, we'll take you to places like where Seneca Village used to be, now just marked with signs, and tell about the mutual aid societies that were in existence, the businesses, the newspapers, there's so much inspiration to be found in those who came before us because they were extremely creative with very little resources and extremely brave. And so, you know, you can use storytelling to help inspire people to think of that, okay, if these people were able to resist, were able to create these amazing businesses and institutions with so little resources, what can I do? If they were able to make networks with each other, maybe let me look at my social circle and who can I network with to work together towards it. And that's the gift that we've received from our ancestors. And so being able to tell those stories helps people young and old to understand the legacy that they're part of. 
When we come back, I'll have the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, make sure you join the Travel Club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, food, music, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report, and we're adding science to that list. Art and science are integral parts of a culture and the global culture. Today, I'm chatting with Michelle Renard, Manager of Exhibitions and Development for the International Museum of Surgical Science. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, thanks so much for having me. What a pleasure. And I'm so glad that I discovered the museum. (laughs) (laughs) So what is the International Museum of Surgical Science exactly? Yeah, so we are uh, located in Chicago. We're actually a division of a larger organization called the International College of Surgeons. The ICS was founded in 1935 by a surgeon named Max Thorick. Um, And you can see his name kind of all across Chicago, but he really wanted to have a place in Chicago devoted to the history of surgery. So he decided to open up the International Museum of Surgical Science with paintings and murals and sculptures all devoted to the history of medicine and important figures. Give us a little bit more about the history, how it was actually developed and when it opened. The museum opened in 1954. So During this time, the International College of Surgeons was headquartered at the building at 1516 North Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. And in the early 1950s, the next door mansion happened to go for sale. And he kind of swiped that up right away, knowing exactly what he wanted to do with that building and turn it into a museum. So the museum is located in a historic mansion that was built in 1917 for a single family. And he wanted first commissioned painter and a sculptor to make the Hall of Immortals, which is 12 stone statues devoted to important figures in medical history, importance for the discovery of antisepsis, anesthesia, and the importance of understanding human anatomy. Similarly, he commissioned an Italian painter to do the Hall of Murals, which is 12 murals all depicting the same figures in important scenes throughout medical history. And then beginning in the 1960s, they had a director of the museum who was also the world president of the college who solicited donations from each country of the world because the college is an international organization with sections in many of the countries around the world. So they solicited donations for objects to represent important feats in medicine specific to those countries. So they received donations from China, from Peru, Japan, all over the world. They were coming in in the 1960s and they started to devote each room in the home to a specific country. And that's really how the museum built up most of its collection. Well, let's talk about that collection. What type of collection do we have and how large is that collection? So the museum has over 7,000 medical artifacts and they do span all over the world and centuries of history. We have artifacts dating back to 2000 BC. We have a collection of ancient skulls from Peru that show evidence of ancient surgical procedure called trephining, where a hole was bored into the skull to relieve pressure on the brain or to relieve spirits that may be making you sick. And then we also have many artifacts that are specific to different fields of medicine, like the history of x-rays, 
We have some of the very first x-rays that were ever developed. We also have some really interesting artifacts like Napoleon's death mask and a perfusion pump that was developed by Charles Lindbergh and Alexis Carell. In what pockets of the period of evolution saw the most advancement or growth? I think that probably through our lens, we think that the evolution of medicine should be a straight line of progress. And that when we received these advancements, we were just getting better and better at surgery. But really, if you look at the history of medicine, it's not a straight line of progress. We have records of ancient writings on medicine and surgery where ancient procedures actually were more successful than what we would consider as more modern times. For example, with trephining, we've discovered that the ancients were actually much, much more successful than like Europeans in the 1500s were doing these same procedures. They had a mortality rate of like 80% of people that would die during this procedure. And in the ancient times, they had an 80% success rate. I think that we can't really look at everything throughout medical history through our modern lens. I also saw on your website that there is a fascinating library, as I think there probably should be or goes hand in hand with science and surgery, but it houses manuscripts and a rare book collection. Tell us about that. Max Thorick, the founder of the museum, he had a personal manuscript collection that spanned many years and had many important documents from the history of medicine. He ended up donating that to the museum as well. And the library is housed in the original Walnut Room Library of the mansion, but is now filled with all of these historic and important medical texts. So this library is also open to researchers who are studying the history of medicine and humanities. We allow them to conduct research in our library, and the holdings is available online for people to browse. Back when they first put the library in, they didn't really use modern cataloging systems. So we're in the process of updating all of that right now and making sure that if a researcher is looking for something specific, we would be able to find it. You're also in a unique location. You mentioned it a little bit as you were telling us about the museum in itself, but it's in the category of a small museum. So if you can tell us about that, and then also it's in a unique location as well as the facility or structure itself. So we are located in a historic home. This is definitely... A larger home than I would ever live in, but it's one of the last remaining mansions on Lakeshore Drive. It's historically protected by the city of Chicago, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. And it's actually the only one that's remaining that's open to the public. It was built in 1917 by a Chicago architect named Howard Van Doren Shaw for the Countess family, Eleanor Robinson Countess and her husband, Frederick Countess. She was an heiress of the Diamond Match Company. If you think of matchbooks, that's kind of what her father and grandfather invented and where they built their fortune. So this house was built as a wedding gift to her and her husband. And unfortunately, later she died very young and her husband squandered the fortune, so they say, and the building just came up for sale at the right time where the International College was able to purchase it and turn it into a museum that's open for the public. It's in a really unique location for a museum because it is a residential neighborhood, but we are downtown Chicago on Lakeshore Drive, right across from North Avenue Beach. So we're in a nice location where if you were to visit the museum, you could take a short walk to the beach, or you could also take a short walk to Magnificent Mile, which is downtown Chicago, kind of the shops and eating area. And is the museum open during regular hours where you can just walk in, or is it more of a curated experience where you need an appointment? It is just open to the general public, and we do have an admission fee, but we also have free days. Right now, our free days are on Tuesdays in the winter, 
and you can find the specific days on our website. But visitors will come in and it's four floors of exhibits where you can just wander through on your own through all the different rooms, medical history. And then on the fourth floor, we have a contemporary arts exhibit where we have rotating contemporary artists showing their work. None of the exhibits are an additional fee, so it's just one fee to walk through. If you wanted a more guided experience, you could download our app that has a self-guided tour and additional information on it. Or we also do have guided tours that if you have a group of people, you can get a tour by one of our educators going through the museum. What is the museum's contribution to the field of surgery, health, and medicine? I think as a history museum, we really strive to be an educational institution, providing a service to the public through educational programs and exhibits and allowing people to understand a part of our shared humanities that is really kind of overlooked, I think, in a lot of areas. A typical history museum, it's very focused and specialized. And even though we have a ton of medical schools in Chicago, we do see a lot of medical students and medical professionals, surgeons, nurses. And what I've learned is that most of these professions, they don't learn about the history of medicine in their classes. So they end up coming to the museum as a resource to understand how far we've come through the history of medicine. It's very interesting because I would think that with any field or any industry, it would start with the history of it. So that's very interesting. And so that makes it a huge contribution to the industry at large to be able to connect to the history. A lot of professors will use us as a resource for their field trips, usually starting in high school. Interesting and fascinating. So again, the International Museum of Surgical Science. Michelle Renard, thank you so much for joining me today. What is the website? Thank you. The website is www.imss.org. IMSS.org, the International Museum of Surgical Science, located right here in Chicago. Well, again, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information.